Stand by while NCLA cuts through the noise to signal abuse of administrative power. This is Administrative Static with Mark Chenoweth and John Vecchione. Welcome back to Administrative Static. And uh, I, this is John Vecchione, and I'm here with Mark Chenoweth. And uh, we have a very important case uh, to report on. And uh, unfortunately, uh, it did not go uh, well for our side. And, and this was in the case of Feds for Medical Freedom versus Joe Biden. And in just to give you a little background, uh, NCLA, in the case of Rodden v. Fauci, had sued the government and moved for a preliminary injunction for employees who had natural immunity. They'd already had COVID-19, and uh, and they did not think they had to get vaccinated. And the um, new administration said, yeah, you did. And so they moved for an injunction and filed a case down in Texas. And uh, the judge said, well, you're not going to be imminently harmed, so we're not going to do it. And then about a month later, uh, in before the same court in Texas, uh, it, it, and uh, a new group, Feds for, <clears throat> for Medical Freedom, and a number of others, uh, sued the administration on the same matter and moved for a preliminary injunction, and they got one. And they got a nationwide injunction because they are part of an association. Feds for Medical Freedom has about 6,000 members all over the country. So um, Judge Brown said, okay, I'm going to enjoin this action until this case gets done. And uh, the government immediately appealed to the Fifth Circuit. And the Fifth Circuit covers Texas and um, for the federal uh, judiciary. And uh, it went to a panel, which is uh, three judges. and It was uh, Judge Barksdale, Judge Stewart, and Judge Dennis. And they said, look, we want you to dissolve this stay and we want you to overturn this preliminary injunction. And the court made, uh, you know, allowed fast briefing of this. So uh, the Feds for Medical Freedom had to brief this very quickly. <clears throat> and uh, they're they're represented by the grave firm and, and they did so. And we then moved very quickly and we put in an amicus brief to say, look, we, we represent a class as well who's protected by this injunction and it's perfectly uh, within the law and you guys should affirm it while this case proceeds. Um, unfortunately, on April 7th, the Fifth Circuit panel came down with its uh, decision. So, I know you're all expecting me to go on now with a lot of constitutional analysis of vaccines and mandatory vaccines and uh, the use of uh, experimental vaccines or emergency use vaccines versus regular vaccines and uh, the various uh, long history of constitutional law in this matter and the legal parameters of it. And um, you're all going to be disappointed. And the reason you're going to be disappointed because the circuit court's opinion um, focuses on the things that 
appellate courts love, 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 and everybody else is um, somewhat jaundiced about, and that is jurisdiction. So uh, the panel came down and ruled in favor of the government and said that, you know, um, here's why. We're not, we're, they, they did take a few shots at the district court, and they did say, well, you're the only one who have, who's done this, and and we recognize that you didn't issue an injunction right off first time you were asked. And but we still think that um, they, they didn't say anything about the actual merits of the injunction or whether the government can do this. Instead, they focused on a law which, if you are in the federal government, you have um, probably heard of. But if you are not, you probably have not. And that and that's um, CSRA. And the CSRA is uh, the law that um, applies to uh, disciplinary hearings uh, within the federal government. If you're an employee of the federal government and you have a grievance, uh, the CSRA provides how you uh, take care of that grievance, how you address it. You say, hey, I'm being tr treated unfairly here. It's called the Civil Service Reform Act. Um, but, but, uh, the fact is, is that um, in this case, the lower court had ruled, and we certainly agreed that this was not a CSRA matter. And the reason it wasn't a CSRA matter is there hadn't been any adverse employment actions against these folks. And, and that, that, sure, they might have adverse employment if they didn't do what it said, but the real issue here was vaccination and not, you know, some labor issue either. So uh, the panel disagreed. And the why does that matter? So why doesn't the district court have to? Well, if it is just an employment employment grievance issue, um, this, the Congress, in its wisdom, uh, has purported to divest the district courts of um, of jurisdiction over those um, those issues. Uh, you know, if you if you say they're making you work too many hours and you, you can't go to you can't go to federal court for that, you've got to say, you know, and they make you work. You have a complaint about that. You got to go through the CSSRA. And then someday in the sweet by and by, maybe you can appeal to a federal circuit. Um, but uh, we had a class action. They had a huge association. This is not these were not one off issues of um, employment matters for this guy or that guy. This this is a broader issue. Um, so uh, what the what the Fifth Circuit panel said with um, with uh, judges Stewart and Dennis in the majority and and Judge Barksdale uh, dissenting. But well, let's talk about the let's talk about the um, majority first because they won, right? So you talk about uh, we'll talk about the majority first and. Um, they say, hey, we first consider the government's argument that the CSRA precluded the district court's subject matter jurisdiction. And this is a big deal. I mean, I sometimes make a light of it, but if you don't have subject matter jurisdiction, then the courts really uh, have to have to kick out the case. And uh, we obviously think they do have subject matter jurisdiction, but it is the first thing an appellate court's going to look at. Because even if the lawyers don't raise it, even if no one says anything, Judge, judges have to decide whether they have subject matter jurisdiction because it's that important in, in American federal law. So um, they say that uh, 
the CSRA established a comprehensive and exclusive procedures for settling work-related controversies between federal civil service employees and the federal government. Uh, and they cite one of their cases from the past. And uh, they, they're, they basically go into a number of cases that discuss the CSRA and say that, you know, appellate review was haphazard and, and you know, for this wonderful act, uh, there were all these problems. Um, and so uh, they go through the various things the CSRA, CSRA does. And um, then it describes the difference under the CSRA for proposed adverse action and those who have suffered adverse action. And um, they say that, that the remedial scheme of the CSRA uh, is elaborate and establishes in great detail the protections and remedies applicable to adverse personnel actions against federal employees, including the avail availability of administrative and judicial review. And so they use a case called Elgin. Now, Elgin um, was a case where a former federal employee uh, tried to attack what was being done to them on a facial or as applied constitutional challenge to a federal statute. And the court rejected that in Elgin. Um, and the, the, so they, they say that this case comes within Elgin and that they're bound by Elgin and that they're going to, they're going to go that way. Um, and they, they, the, they agree with the government. The government said there'd be a parade of horribles that, uh, you know, if you allow this, the genie's out of the box and the CSRA will be circumvented all the time. And so the, the majority agreed with them on this, but we don't think so. And there's another thing going on here. As you may know, uh, NCLA won the Cochrane case in the Fifth Circuit. And Elgin is part of a trilogy of cases where the Supreme Court talked about when federal jurisdiction is divested in the district court and when not. And Cochrane sort of separated Elgin. And, and that decision should be binding here. And I don't think they even mentioned Cochrane in the majority decision. Um, but so I will just go on to, to note um, that Judge Barksdale uh, said, no, this, this is not the case. Uh, what the president's doing here is um, is is not by any agency. Number one, it's 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 across the government, um, and and it has a lot of problems with it. And in fact, they hadn't had any uh, adverse uh, rulings yet. And um, and he says, look, Elgin really doesn't cover this. Um, and so in Elgin, they'd already received an adverse action termination. So it was a completely different situation. And it says that um, that, so in any event, he, he, Judge Barksdale notes that the, there's no employee agency that did this. This was a presidential order. So it's absolutely different. So we're, we're gonna see what's happening. Now, we understand because the government then did something else. Government said, hey, you didn't issue an injunction against that stay. We still can't do any adverse actions against these people. So 
they admit they can't do any adverse actions under the district court's order. And they go back to the appellate court and they say, it's an emergency motion. It's an emergency that they can't fire all these people who do not have COVID, are not hurting anybody and are doing their jobs. Uh, but they came in and they said, "This is, we need emergency action. So uh, the, the Feds for Freedom have opposed that. Uh, they want to go on bonk and ask the whole Fifth Circuit about this. And when they do, we will bring it back to But we'll be back in a little bit. Welcome back to Administrative Static. Mark Chenoweth here with John Vecchioni. We have a new lawsuit, or actually a, a new appeal of a, of, a, of a lawsuit to talk with you about. This case was filed earlier this week uh, on, on Wednesday in the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit, and the Sixth Circuit covers Michigan, Ohio, Kentucky, and Tennessee. The name of the case is Polyweave Packaging Incorporated versus U.S. Department of Transportation Pipeline and Hazardous Materials Safety Administration. Uh, I'm familiar with uh, with FEMSA. That's a P H M S A is is uh, is pronounced FEMSA in the world of of uh, alphabet soup agencies in D.C. Uh, because when I worked for Congressman Pompeo, he served on the Energy and Commerce Committee, and that committee had jurisdiction uh, over uh, over FEMSA and over pipelines. So I I have uh, gained some familiarity with this uh, with this agency. But in any event, uh, polyweave packaging was uh, it was the hazardous materials side of the agency's jurisdiction that was relevant uh, in the uh, enforcement action that was brought against our client, uh, NCLA's client, polyweave packaging, uh, which is a, a Kentucky-based uh, company. It's a Delaware corporation, but its uh, principal place of business is in Kentucky. And what happened is that uh, polyweave manufactures a uh, uh, a kind of a, an envelope, I guess you could uh, you could call it a a bag with a with an inner liner for customers who transport explosives, and it's been in business in Madisonville, Kentucky since since 1980. It's been manufacturing uh, this bag that has a polypropylene component uh, on the on the outside, the outer component, and then it has an inner polyethylene uh, bag. And back way back in 1992, Polyweave obtained uh, from FEMSA's predecessor agency, a, an agency known as the Research and Special Programs Administration, it obtained uh, a ruling, or at least uh, a it was advised over the phone by an RSPA uh, employee uh, about some of the complex regulations that the agency had put out because there was there's a difference under the under the hazardous materials regulations as to whether a bag is considered a combination package that has to be retested every 24 months or whether it's a composite packaging that must be retested every 12 months well after consultation with this predecessor agency Hollyweave was uh, was told that that it uh, that its product should be considered a combination package. 
which was good news because that meant that it was subject to 24-month uh, retesting. Here's that, that what happened then for more than for more than two decades, uh, Polyweave was relying on this uh, guidance uh, as to which category its uh, bag fell into, and it was retesting the bag every every 24 months. Uh, agency inspected Polyweave multiple times during that. Never questioned Polyweave's uh, testing schedule. Uh, didn't have didn't have any problems uh, during that during that time uh, until uh, 2015 rolls around and the the inspectors at FEMSA uh, encountered a, a different problem about some some markings on the outside of one of Polyweave's bags at a customer's found in a customer's inventory. The, the, the markings were difficult to read and the FEMSA inspector uh, noticed this. Uh, Polyweave immediately recalled and replaced uh, every affected bag, identified the printer that had caused the problem, mothballed that device and uh, went on its, went on its merry way. But Polyweave uh, wasn't, wasn't lucky enough to, uh, to have the agency uh, leave it there. It decided that that it would uh, investigate further, and it uh, it continued uh, to look into this matter, and ultimately uh, concluded that there was a a problem with uh, not just with the with the printing, but with the bag having been tested every 24 months rather than every 12 months. It also decided that uh, Polyweave's employees needed training that they didn't have the, under the regulations. It, anybody that ships hazardous materials has to have uh, training, uh, but Polyweave is a manufacturer. They, they aren't the shipper, and so they didn't think that their employees had to be trained under this. Uh, but once they were informed otherwise, they shut down the entire plant in 2015 for a day, conducted the, re the required uh, training, and, uh, and you know, corrected any deficiency there in a matter of, of just a few weeks. So you would think that a reasonable regulator might leave matters uh, there, you you had uh, an agency uh, give some new advice that was new to the regulated entity. The regulated entity immediately complied, agreed to comply on a going forward basis. You would think that's what you're what you're looking for from your from your regulated entities, but uh, that is not where where uh, FEMSA left left it. And so, what we have in in this lawsuit uh, is an appeal of several aspects of what. Uh, FEMSA has has done uh, to to Polyweave uh, with this uh, with this enforcement uh, action and 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 fine and so forth. First problem is that under the regulations, you have to show that a company knowingly violated the hazardous materials regulations. And as the story I just laid out uh, to you might suggest, at no point was Polyweave knowingly violating the regulations. They were uh, testing the product every 24 months. They did the training as soon as they were informed that they needed to do the training. They replaced the printer as soon as they discovered a problem with the printer. They were not, it's not a situation where they were advised of a non-compliant situation and continued uh, obstreperously to, uh, to violate the, the regulation. That's not what happened at all. So they weren't at any point knowingly violating the regulation. And yet that's what the statute requires, that that the government has to show that Polyweave knowingly violated the hazardous materials regulations. Well, the agency, because it's easier to do this, wants to just 
prove that FEMSA knew that it was engaged in the conduct in which it was engaged. Well, that's a that's a kind of uh, strict liability uh, statute or uh, standard of of, uh, of liability. And if you hold a FEMSA, or if FEMSA holds Polyweave to that standard, well, Polyweave would have a difficult time showing that it didn't know that it was, for example, printing labels on bags or that it was testing the product every 24 months rather than every 12 months or that it wasn't uh, testing, uh, excuse me, that it wasn't training employees who were not engaged in the shipping of hazardous materials. Uh, so they've, they've really changed through regulation. They've tried and through their enforcement strategy, tried to change the statutory standard of what, uh, of what the sort of the, the level of scienter is, the required level of scienter. They've tried to change it from, from knowing uh, to something uh, far uh, less stringent. And that's, that's problem uh, number one. And that's part of the part of the appeal here that, that NCLA is pressing. The other, uh, the second issue here is that uh, there is a statute of limitations problem that the uh, agency has. There's only, uh, I believe it's five years that, uh, that it has to bring an enforcement action once uh, five years from the time that, that the violation has, has allegedly occurred uh, before, uh, before the statute of limitations runs. Well, in this instance, more than five years ran uh, by the time FEMSA got around to pressing uh, its uh, its enforcement action, or or at least by the time it sought to to bring a civil penalty action against uh, Polyweave in in federal district court, because there's good precedent that suggests that an administrative hearing isn't enough. The agency can't just launch an administrative hearing and push out the statute of limitations in that way, and that's what the agency is trying to claim that it can do. It's it's saying, well, look, we we started investigating, we put this in front of one of our one of our ALJs and the fact that we didn't get around to to uh, bringing a civil penalty action in federal district court, well, that, that shouldn't matter. Uh, but the reason it matters is because when you get to federal district court, you have the right to a trial by jury and you don't have a right to trial by jury in an administrative uh, action. And in uh, in this case, Polyweave has a right to trial by jury. And if you, uh, if you allow the agency's administrative action to go forward without requiring them to bring an action in federal district court, uh, then Polyweave's uh, right to trial by jury uh, would be violated. And of course, the adjudicatory apparatus within FEMSA is structurally biased. It violates Polyweave's due process rights uh, in, in several other ways uh, as well. The, uh, the chief safety officer who, uh, you know, who's involved in this administrative hearing is insulated from presidential removal in a way that we have have uh, have found to be unconstitutional in some of our other cases. So there's a there's a myriad of problems that are infecting uh, what FEMSA uh, is doing here. Uh, but the statute of limitations is a is a, a really uh, significant uh, part of the problem. And the fact that it's trying to use its administrative hearing to push out the statute of limitations is problematic. And let me let me try to explain that one more way. If there's a five-year statute of limitations, the reason why Congress would have put that into effect is it wants to, it wants there to be uh, a time period after which someone doesn't have to worry anymore. If you if you have to keep your records indefinitely, if you have to, uh, you know, if if the government can come after you 20 years later and you have to defend yourself, well, you may not have the records to defend yourself. You may not have the employees on hand who can who can. Uh, help you defend yourself. You may not have the, the memories may not be there for those folks, even if they are still around. 
And so statute of limitations are important to ensure a fair opportunity to defend one's conduct in these kinds of, of situations. If the administrative agency can come in and, and say, you know, toll the statute of limitations, which means delay the either delay the the statute of limitations from from a period from starting or or postponing the end of the of the statute of limitations period, then the administrative agency could theoretically do that indefinitely. It could keep that administrative proceeding open. And as we've seen in other agencies, keep that open for five, seven, nine years, whatever. And then instead of a five-year statute of limitations, you'd be looking at a 10, 12-year statute of limitations, something like that. And that wouldn't be fair uh, to the company either. So as I say, multiple problems with this. Uh, we, we have confidence that the Sixth Circuit is going to be very interested in this scienter question that the agency has not shown a knowing violation in this statute of limitations issue, in this fact that they're trying to push out the administrative hearing to delay the statute of limitations, and in this question of uh, denying uh, FEMSA, or excuse me, denying Hollyweave its right to trial by jury. We'll be back with more right after this.